Welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast as we continue our conversations with various people who are knowledgeable on the area of uh, artisanal small-scale mining. My guest today is Norman Mukwakwami, who is a Zimbabwean mineral economist and mining engineer with uh, a lot of experience working with institutions such as the World Bank, PACT, Oxfam, and Transparency International in the development sector. In the private sector, among others, he has worked for Lafarge Holcim. Formerly, Norman was Mandela Washington Fellow, and he has conducted research in the subject of artisanal small-scale mining, resource nationalism, among others, in various African countries. Norman, welcome to the Sheila Executive Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Sheila, for having me on the podcast, and I welcome the listeners to this session. Fantastic. So when we think of additional small-scale mining, Norman, do you find that there are certain minerals that tend to uh, dominate this uh, subsector? And if so, uh, which are those minerals? So certainly, um, if you look at the high-value and low-weight minerals, um, so minerals that have a, a, a higher proportion of value to weight, um, they tend to be the minerals that artisanal miners uh, work on quite a lot. So uh, usually gold uh, across many countries, across many continents, uh, gold is one of the key minerals produced by artisanal small-scale miners and diamonds. Um, and so this also means uh, several other types of precious and semi-precious stones, but also lately we've also seen a rise in production of some um, industrial uh, minerals, but which have high value uh, due to evolving technology. So you, we're talking about, for example, coltan uh, in DRC, tantalite was pretty popular in Zimbabwe and a few other countries in the past. But we should also not forget about the facet of artisanal Moscow mining, which is oftentimes um, in people's blind spots, but out there in the open. So this is your industrial um, and aggregate sector. So uh, you have a lot of artisanal small-scale producers of, for example, pit sand, river sand, um, and other aggregates that are used in the construction industry, but produced with the same technologies and the same sort of individuals as you'd find in the artisanal small-scale gold or diamond mining. Yeah, that is interesting because, of course, uh, the the it it's it's the logistics of operating. The clearly you can see how uh, an artisanal small scale miner uh, wants to be able to produce today and sell immediately and get value, uh, and and so in a way, a handling high value, low volume mineral substances, and those that uh, have. Uh, a surge in demand in the market, uh, it seems to me, uh, make, make sense, but also those that are in daily use and easy to access, like pit sand. Uh, I suppose this is the context in which you would have been working with uh, Lafarge Holson because they are the world's leading producer of aggregate. So certainly I, I agree with you in terms of um that being one of the key drivers for artisanal miners' attraction to certain minerals. Um, first is, is there a ready market for what they're producing? 
um, so gold in most uh, contexts in the world, there's usually a buyer close by for gold, for diamonds, for many precious stones. And similarly, when it comes to construction, um, there's a lot of uh, demand for construction material at different types of volumes, depending on the size of uh, buildings that people are building. Um, so with Lafarge Holsim, I was actually a graduate, uh, an, an intern uh, mining engineer at, at uh, their site here in Arari, Zimbabwe. Um, and I, I had not yet immersed myself in the world of artisanal small-scale mining, but certainly that experience of working with aggregates and the mining of limestone and the like um, prepared me to also better understand the artisanal small-scale mining um, sector in, in the aggregate subsector. So uh, when we you, you say that in, in uh, say, precious metals like gold, there's, there's always someone willing to, to buy the gold because they themselves know there's demand elsewhere uh, in the world. When, when you think of uh, this uh, artisanal uh, mining value chain, where do you think the greatest value lies and who stands to benefit? Is it the, the woman or the man who's digging? Or is it the middleman who's buying from the digger and selling onwards to somebody else who sells onwards to another? So firstly, I think we need to disaggregate the value chains in the artisanal small-scale gold mining sector. Um, and, I'm, and I'm going to speak mainly from the Zimbabwean context. And you see there are two main types of deposits that miners uh, produce from. You have your alluvial gold deposits, and then you have your uh, hard rock uh, gold deposits. With alluvial gold deposits, what happens is um, these miners are actually extracting gold nuggets um, and then aggregating them together into a gold dough that they can sell. So in this particular value chain, it's a very simple uh, value chain where you have a miner producing gold, um, concentrating it in a rudimentary way, and then selling it onto the market, which oftentimes they sell onto a middleman or they sell onto what in the Zimbabwean context we call a runner. Uh, this, this is a person who's literally uh, employed to go around and buy by uh, bigger buyers in, in the country. Um, or they might even take it to the state uh, uh, company that, which has a monopoly of a gold buying in Zimbabwe. Right? So this is the alluvial side of things, a very simple uh, value chain. With a hard rock, and maybe I'll ask a question first, alluvial. Alluvial, um, certainly the value, uh, a significant amount of the value accrues the miner, but also these middlemen get a lot more benefit depending on the policy. So for example, in Zimbabwe right now, uh, riverbed mining is, is illegal, meaning um, the buyers now have a leverage point by which they can try to buy that gold for cheaper because they, they know they're, they're buying someone who's working illegally. Uh, and oftentimes even have buyers who work in cohorts with, with the police to, to lure a miner uh, to come and try to sell to them, and then they have the person arrested and they take the gold anyway. Um, then with the hard rock mining side, it's a, it's a different world because what you then have is very little of that gold is actually in nugget form. Um, I think people who've done it say it's less than 30% of it. Um, and this gold in nugget form is either recovered on the site where they're mining, and then they engage in making amalgamation um, to sort of uh, concentrate it and, and um, 
agglomerated into a door that they can sell, or they go to the mineral processing sites, right? And in Zimbabwe, we have what we call the stem milling sites, um, where it's a rudimentary crushing process um, where they use technology from well over 100 years ago. And that first crushing site uh, phase is where the miner takes the ore, um, takes their gold from, and it's just the, mainly the nuggets again, and they engage in the mercury amalgamation. They leave the 70% of the gold in the fines, which go into cyanidation. And the cyanidation is done by the, the owner of the processing plant. And that material now belongs to that person. It's no longer the miners and they get no benefit from it. So with the hard rock mining, most of the value actually accrues to uh, the owners of these processing plants, be it the millers or those in the illusion plants, because it's also a, a fairly complex um, part of the value chain where you start off with uh, cyanidation and then you have uh, the illusion of the gold out of it. Um, so to answer that question, uh, for the hard rock mining, certainly the mineral processes tend to gain the most. And then when it comes to the gender dynamics around this, you will see that in alluvial mining, um, women can be miners, so they can get a fair value of the money. You, you find a few women engaging in, in the buying and selling of gold, they can also buy. So it's, it's, women have fair opportunities, but they're way less represented. And they're still affected by the broader um, issues that uh, mitigate women's participation in the sector, you know, violence, um, which can be gender-based at times, uh, myths and, and uh, uh, stigma that also pushes women uh, out of the sector. But with hard rock mining, um, women tend to work in parts of um, the value chain where they have less value. So for example, that mercury amalgamation on mining sites, which is very dangerous, and pays very little and uh, actually adds very little value to the gold. And not only are they doing the dangerous work, but they are also making less money there. And you have way less women who are actually owning these illusion plants and the mineral process. Hmm. So you said a mouthful, uh, a thought about, but you already spoken about the economic and environmental disadvantage of certain artisanal mining conditions to women. What of children in this work? So child labor is certainly um, a very serious issue. It's a very serious human rights issue um, in the artisanal small-scale mining sector the world over. In Zimbabwe, I mean, there are various estimates to just how many children are working in the sector. And, and it's very difficult to place a figure, on, figure to it because it's also um, an aspect of the sector that is hidden from you. Um, and oftentimes, if you're a stranger, you walk up to a mining site, the people on the site will tell the children to, to go and hide. Um, so it takes time working with these groups, and then slowly you, they, they trust you enough to let you see that side of things. Now, with children, um, firstly, in Zimbabwe's laws, and also, I think, um, with, with the UN Convention around child labor, um, the, the definition is that anyone who is engaging in labor below the age of 16, um, it's, it's illegal for, for anyone to engage in labor. But with um, types of labor that involve very hard and dangerous work, like artisanal small-scale mining or mining in general, uh, the age is actually 18. And in Zimbabwe, you have a very large number of uh, young boys of school going or, or who have just left school um, who engage in artisanal small-scale mining. So your um, 
14 or 13 to 17 year olds form a, a significant number of artisans Moscow miners. Now, this is where I think there often is a clash between cultural norms um, and, and policy, because if you look at alternative livelihoods, for example, farming, no one would have a problem with a father taking um, their 15 or 16 year old son to, to go and engage in farming. So if this farmer is a seasonal farmer, he might end up taking his 16 year old son to mine with them because he sees this boy already as a young man, right? From a cultural perspective. So these are some of the cultural drivers that, that bring this issue of child labor to the fore in a country like Zimbabwe. And in Zimbabwe, you have way less of uh, the very young children. So your um, the children that are probably below 12 or below 10, um, whose images you, you often see related to child labor in countries like DRC. So here, it's, it's, a, it's much less of a problem with that age group. So the challenge in Zimbabwe is these young teens, particularly boys, and how they then become exposed to things like drug abuse, um, violence, even gender-based violence at these mining sites, and also just the dangers of the work. Yeah. Hmm. So, so um, it's interesting because you you've you've spoken about uh, human rights. Um, so, when you think about the challenges that face the miners, regardless of gender or age. Do you think that a bigger problem in artisanal mining so far as social issues are concerned is failure to enforce human rights? Or do you think that a bigger problem is failure to separate modern law and its view on labor rights from more culturally nuanced social values? That's a very good question. Um, so I think I would need to start at the point of um, stating outright that artisanal small-scale mining is often viewed as something that's new, something that comes from uh, the rise in poverty in Africa in the 80s and 90s um, and the loss of jobs during that period. When we forget that artisan small-scale mining was there before the large-scale miners came, right? Um, the same practices were in place for centuries, producing gold that was shipped um, to India, to, to the Arabic region. Um, and these practices have stayed in place. So in some areas that are mined today in Zimbabwe have been mined for centuries. Many of the large-scale mines in Zimbabwe were just... Uh, developed over ancient artisan small-scale workings. So we need to understand that the, the, the culture of artisan small-scale mining is not a recent phenomena, right, which developed under the same period where you have all these issues of labor rights coming into place. But rather, it's a, it's a long-standing structural um, industry in the country, which due to the significant participation of indigenous Zimbabweans uh, in it was, was firstly marginalized and then also made illegal by the colonial law. So for example, we still have a law in Zimbabwe today, the Gold Trade Act, which prohibits the possession of gold by anyone. So uh, under the Rhodesian state, if you happen to find gold, 
the state required that you not go anywhere with it. You leave it where you found it and you go and report to the police that there's gold somewhere. Uh, so it was not as if people were walking around picking gold. It was because there was still a small scale mining going on, keeping people from being uh, moved to the farms and to the bigger mines to work as labor. Right? So this was competing with the colonial agenda of moving labor from um, the, the native areas to the mines and the farms. So all these laws that were developed during the colonial period were not uh, were there not to serve the, the, the interests of the artisan small scale miners of the time. And it has continued after independence. It's still ignored. The difference now is you now have an additional layer of laws that are coming in, particularly around human rights, which are, which should be addressing the challenges that artisanal small scale miners face. But because that middle layer of national laws that just formalize the sector and allow it to be represented formally is missing, it becomes very difficult to tie the two together. And this is where the issue of uh, human rights uh, abuses um, becomes an issue, whether it's perpetrated on artisanal miners by the state or large-scale companies, or it's perpetrated by miners on each other. Mm. Uh, I, I think what you're saying is true, but I, I think uh, there are a couple of things that I think also need to be recognized. Uh, when the uh, pre-Rhodesia people of Zimbabwe were mining either gold or iron ore as a legitimate vocation, making a living and some of them being part of uh, a thriving uh, artisanal culture. What we have now is what you described earlier, a layer of people that have injected themselves into this legitimate, historic way of making a living, but are now basically taking advantage and committing illegal acts. This, I think, adds a complexity for the regulator because the question is, how do you separate the two? How do you know uh, uh, who is a legitimate artisan uh, and who is merely uh, somebody abusing that historic uh, precedence? I, I think is a, is a genuine problem. I think on the human rights uh, side also, um, Two things. One, you're absolutely correct about the cultural context, but I always think that social norms, cultural norms, and laws for that matter, mimic the values of our time. And therefore, I don't think the fact that things are cultural make them right. I think cultures must evolve and cultures must embrace change and that the laws of our time must reflect that. And in, in that sense, I would say a father, to the extent that all things equal, of a 15-year-old girl taking her or a boy out of school to do farming or artisanal mining in today's environment just isn't right. But perhaps 100 years ago, when we didn't have schools, and that was, in fact, this school, because he was being trained to be the future, uh, if you wish, uh, steel maker or somebody working with objects of gold and, and, and producing uh, gold pieces. You know, going to, my, to the mine with the father 
was essentially a school and, and a form of, of uh, technical training. So, so my sense is that part of the challenge that we have with artisanal small scale is this layers of issues. How well do you think the, the interventions today are, are sufficiently specific to artisanal mining to make a difference? You make a very good point. So when it comes to interventions, uh, I think you, you hit the nail on the head by saying some interventions are addressing issues that are not unique to the artisanal small scale mining sector. For example, child labor, as you described very well. Um, and at the same time, you also have issues that are unique um, to the artisanal small scale mining sector which are typically your economic interventions. So interventions that um, go in to try to formalize the sector, to um, support these miners with uh, techniques around uh, mining better, um, making the right sort of decisions around how they um, manage their finances, um, how they manage the environment during the, uh, the mining process itself. So these interventions are typically very specific and uh, the scale at which they are done, in, in my view, particularly in Zimbabwe, is quite limited. I've, I've been part and parcel of projects to do this. They've not been resourced well enough to, to address the challenges at the scale of the 500,000 Zimbabweans who are in the sector, right? But they've made a difference in demonstrating how uh, change can be delivered in improving um, the mining methods, improving environmental protection, for example. Um, and then again, there are these interventions now that are linked with uh, issues like um, violence in communities, um, gender-based violence, um, child prostitution or prostitution in general, um, and even the issue of child labor that we've been talking about. And these, I feel, don't need to be addressed in isolation. As you rightly pointed out, if you have... Um, a policy environment in which fathers continue to take uh, young boys and girls to the fields and no one questions it. But the moment that is done in the small scale mining sector, it is there are interventions that are addressing it there. Then you don't solve the problem of child labor. You literally have fathers realizing, okay, children can go work in the fields while the adults work at the mines and you still have child labor at the end of the day. These need to be addressed at a national level across all sectors, right? You spoke about this issue of apprenticeship, which was there in the past of how, um, and it became uh, built into how industries work where uh, even with the laws around child labor, there is still the clauses around apprenticeships. You say, if you're above the age of 16, you can still go into apprenticeship in these particular sectors, but under the supervision of someone who's an expert at what they're doing, right? So all these things have to be um, sort of factored in. But at another set of interventions that are very key are those that are around improving value. One of the first questions you asked were, where is the money going? Who is making the money in the sector, right? And um, the improvement of value is not just the value in terms of the amount of gold one gets, but also reducing the cost to the miners themselves and also their communities. And one of the major costs we have right now in Zimbabwe is the cost of to human health due to mercury, right? 
Um, and there are some studies that have sort of estimated how many hours of labor are lost a year due to the disabilities that come from the use of mercury in Zimbabwe. And they've talked about well over 50,000 uh, hours of labor that are lost. Um, so to, to go into those interventions, I think there's a paper I came across recently uh, by Marcelo Vega, which spoke about the need, which is arguing that one of the key things that need to be done in the sector is get the artisanal small scale miners to focus on mining and the mineral process to focus on processing. And the one way to do this and doing this would eradicate the use of mercury. I mean, it's, it's a paper that I'm pretty sure has as critics the world over, but it brings in the important point of the only way to get mercury out of the system, or one of the best ways to get mercury out of the system is to get the artisanal small scale miners to sell ore to the processors, right? Instead of um, them having to engage in an amalgamation at the processing plant, they actually sell the ore. Of course, that comes the difficulty of valuing um, the ore itself and determining how much gold is in there for the mineral processor to, to buy it from the artisanal miner. But those are sort of interventions that will drive real change in the sector and start reducing some costs or adding value uh, to that is on small scale mining sector. Simply because that cost that you just described is not in monetary terms and it's not in immediate monetary terms. So um, and if I'm an artisanal miner today and I have extracted two tons of gold bearing rock out of the ground, I have the option to sell it off to a mineral processor who's not going to pay me as much as I could get uh, by simply engaging in making amalgamation and crushing the rock myself. Um, but that comes at the cost to my health over the long term. And I have the other option of uh, simply processing the gold myself. So that cost-benefit analysis that artisanal miners do removes the cost, the long-term cost that comes with making amalgamation. The moment through policy, through education, through training, or some other way that cost is built into their cost-benefit analysis, whether mentally or actually in the market pricing of how they engage in the activities, then they are forced to build it in and realize that selling ore is actually, uh, actually makes more sense to them, right? Mm. So um, yeah. it is the same with what has happened in many countries where they engaged in polluting aspects of the value chain. And as the government uh, increased the cost of polluting, they either outsourced that part of um, the, the processing chain to other countries that didn't have the, those environmental regulations, or they simply improved the technology of doing that. So the technology to actually extract gold from um, uh, rock without using mercury exists just pricier. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not as easy to use because firstly, mercury is very available. It's very cheap. It does not require electricity. These people are working out in um, rural areas where there's limited access to electricity. It doesn't require electricity, it doesn't require a lot of water. It is just the best possible way uh, in courts of extracting the gold that's available to them at that point. Unfortunately, it kills, it destroys mm. lives. It, it makes it very difficult for women to bear healthy children in the long term. And as long as minors are not forced by education, training, or policy to integrate that costs into how they do business, they will never change. Mm. Yeah, so, so it's a kind of a false uh, cost-benefit analysis because basically uh, they are not factoring in all the costs. They are only taking a, a short-term view 
of what they perceive the cost, or even worse, taking only a monetary view of uh, what they perceive as value. Let me uh, come back to efforts to somehow create order, uh, increase value, and also improve safety. Quite a number of the sustainability uh, initiative and advocacy uh, programs for responsible, safe, and beneficial artisanal small-scale mining are initiated from the global north, looking, if you wish, southward and, and, and seeking to be part of a solution. And, and that in itself, in my view, is commendable. But I've always wondered whether the unintended consequence of this is one, failure to culturally nuance some of the challenges as we, you and I have acknowledged. But also that in, in doing the work that NGOs from the global north do uh, globally and having visibility and being big brands in their own rights, albeit in the civil society space, that the, one of the undesirable outcomes is that they alienate national NGOs and advocacy groups that may well have a better understanding of these cultural nuances. What is your uh, observation, Norman? That's, that's very true. Um, so there's certainly very good work that comes from the global north around supporting artisanal small-scale mining. Um, and I think certainly in the past, they, there were some efforts that didn't work very well because um, they were either blanket approaches or, or just trying to replicate what worked in another context without um, taking into account the political economy of different contexts and what are the key incentives, the structural factors and the institutional drivers that would allow for change to happen or prevent it from happening. Um, in my experience, because I've worked with some of the, the global uh, organizations working around autism, small scale mining, I've witnessed change. I've, I've certainly seen, um, firstly, in personnel, I've, I've seen more hiring of locals, um, building of, of local teams that have the autonomy at a national level to direct programs and get technical gui guidance from outside. I've also seen efforts and, and uh, investment to understand the political economy of artisanal small-scale mining uh, so as to address it. At the same time, we've, I've also seen it in the private sector where there is a growth in uh, supply chain due diligence interventions. Uh, assessments done by large-scale miners who either are associated uh, with artisanal mining due to proximity or actually have artisanally produced minerals going into their supply chains. And they've taken the time to conduct these assessments. Uh, and again, I mean, the globe, you will find institutions from the global north tend to have the lion's share of work and assessments. But again, you see a lot more um, people from these contexts um, working as, as, as consultants or supporting these uh, assessments or actually leading these assessments. And I've also been fortunate to, to work on several of these for different institutions. So I would say um, there is that risk that I think programming that is done with good intentions but is not uh, built with the right local contextualization uh, may not 
lead to the expected results and that that local contextualization whether through um working with teams investment in, in knowing how local contexts work or otherwise uh, certainly adds value but another aspect to this is you we're also seeing institutions such as the University of Cape Town, uh, which is the Minds to Markets Initiative, uh, beginning to, to work around issues in artisanal small scale mining. They're, they're working on alternatives uh, to make you at a technological level. Uh, so this is an, uh, an initiative that is in um, the Faculty of Engineering, working on technologies to remove mercury from the artisanal small scale mining value chain. And, and these, uh, in quotes, homegrown solutions um, certainly need to be given the space uh, through um, governments that allow these programs to work in the countries and, and uh, pilot the programs. And so we need to see both uh, solutions coming from the global north, solutions from the global south. Even also that uh, there are experiences from different parts of the world, it, it does make sense to engage others who have a, a different perspective. My sense is that the key uh, is essentially ensuring that even when we recognize differences that are socially and culturally based, we very consciously find ways to reconcile our views. Given this range of challenges, um, is artisanal mining presumably uh, because you know it is topical? Is it not and getting an unfair amount of attention at the expense of genuine problems that are social that simply play out in the artisanal mining space? Is uh, the tail here wagging the dog, perhaps? And 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 that we make uh, much too much an issue of artisanal mining at the expense of generic social ills like human rights, child uh, abuse, environmental degradation, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how can we avoid this uh, uh, tendency? I totally understand your question. Um, and I think it's a very good question to say how much attention um, is the right amount of attention to, to artisanal small scale mining and, and the risks uh, in it. Um, it's a very difficult question to answer, um, but I would, I, what I can certainly answer is the part of the question that, that asks, um, where does this attention come from? Um, why is there this uh, maybe significant amount of attention to Moscow mining. Um, and I'll say it's, it's really an issue of markets. So I'll give that example that I've been using throughout the podcast, which is the example of two children, one working at a farm and the other working at, a, at an artisanal mine. Um, the reason why you have more global media and NGO focus on the child working uh, at, a, at a mine, probably more than the one working at a farm, is simply because. Um, that child is producing gold. That gold may end up in a jewelry shop in New York, in Chicago, in Beijing, uh, in Dubai, or in London, right? And the effect of that child labor becomes global. Whereas if that child on the farm is only producing maize that is consumed locally in that community, 
their effect is not as global. The effect and the fruits of that labor is not as global. So if the child working on the mine becomes injured, the participation of people across the world in that injury is more significant than the participation of the, the whole world in the injury to the child working at a farm. So this is, and, and this applies to other aspects of it, the, 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 uh, the gendered um, uh, violence, the gendered uh, myths that prevent women participation in the sector are also part and parcel of, of the same issue. So any uh, ills that happen in the artisanal and small scale mining sector, whether in Zimbabwe, if it's in gold, which I've tended to focus on today, but also with culture and which goes into our smartphones becomes of global concern. This is not to say a child working on the farm does not deserve the global concern. It's just to say the mechanism through which that concern flows, which is through the market and the, the access to the products they produce does not exist for children working on farm. It does not exist for, for children that are producing um, pit sand and river sand that is just sold to, to local builders. So my, my um, response to your question is probably how do we actually get more attention to these other issues that don't have that market access uh, to concern, that don't have market access to demand for solutions? And the way we can probably do this is use artisanal mining to highlight child labor in other places. To say, this is you, we saw a, a New York Times article about child labor in gold mining in Zimbabwe. What we need to tell you is it's not just in gold mining, it's also in river, river sand mining. It's also in the production of tobacco, which is also in the cigarettes that you're consuming in Europe and in China, right? So how do we use the attention that is there to demand solutions to also apply to the other ills in, across Zimbabwe's economy? I think the world is coming around to that which is why we have the notion of responsible sourcing, but also fair trade. All these things are trying to address the link between source and consumer. And the consumers in uh, the Global North particularly are using their voice to uh, literally vote with their dollar and use that uh, power of uh, uh, purchase to influence policies uh, at source. And, and, and I think it, it, it works. In, in some uh, products that has worked and, and hopefully it, can, it will ultimately also influence the artisanal mining space and mass. Here's my last question to you. We've spoken about children and we've spoken about uh, women. Uh, when we have spoken about men, uh, Norman, it, it, we put them in the position of uh, been perpetrators. Is it really like that? Who is speaking for the well-being of men and the pressures that put men to be in the position uh, of using mercury, going underground, dying, and doing all sorts of things? Are men really simply the perpetrator in the space of artisanal mining? And why is there apparent focus on only women and children? That's a brilliant point. Um... So without question, when you, when you look at just numbers, men are without doubt the biggest victims, um, also the biggest perpetrators of ills in the sector itself. Um, and I think particular attention has always been given to children and women, um, not just in the sector, but anywhere. You go back to whenever there was a fire or a sheep that was sinking, 
women and, and, and children are safe first. So I, I guess the same principles have just been applied um, to uh, the Moscow mining sector. But we need to highlight um, that men are the biggest victims when it comes to numbers of uh, violence in the sector, of uh, murders and killings that, that happen in the sector, of the use of mercury. Um, and also men as parents and men as uh, husbands um, and uh, men as caregivers or, or breadwinners also become indirectly affected by what happens to the children and what happens to, to, to their wives and daughters and sisters in artisanal small-scale mining spaces. So that sort of impact on men needs to be contextualized. To be honest, I think most interventions just generalize um, that when it comes to men, we are dealing with men the same way we do everything, but there's no special uh, attention to issues there. I've seen though at, uh, a few attempts to look at how do you get men as to become the solution holders for issues such as gender-based violence in the sector, not just going to the women and finding out their experiences and training them how they can uh, evade violence from men, but speaking to the men and finding out from those who are perpetrators and those who have the ability to protect, uh, finding out why it still happens and what needs to be changed in the sector. So I think um, the interventions that need to be done around, that are gendered, need to be done in both spaces, not just to focus on women, but also looking at men as both victims and also as solution holders. That's fantastic. I think that's a good note to leave uh, our discussion today. So first to say, uh, Norman, that uh, I will be staying in touch and uh, follow through on some of the issues and see how we progress. However, for now, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast is privileged to have your voice. Thank you very much, Sheila, for having me. Uh, and thank you uh, to the listeners for um, paying us the attention.